0: Well, good morning again, and welcome to Mount Calvary Church. My name is Matt Watson, and I'm the lead pastor. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay, we're beginning a new series this morning. Uh, the series is going to be called The Discipleship Journey. This is, this is an exciting time for us. Uh, this has been a series that I've been writing with our elders and with our staff and our pastors for the last nine months, I feel like God has been guiding us as a church to kind of think through who we are as a church. What are we doing? Uh, You'll see the left-hand side of your bulletin has changed. I joke around that that's like the inerrant part of the bulletin. And it has now been changed. uh, Because this is our focus as a church. And so I want to give you a a little bit of a backdrop about where this series came from. Uh, I preached on discipleship uh, and the Great Commission several months ago, and so some of this this beginning part will be repeated, but I want to just share with you how God has been working with the elders and the pastors to kind of take us to where we are this morning. About nine months ago, I was out on a run with one of our new attenders here at the church. I like to run, and so if you want to run with me, man, I'd like to do that. Walk. We can walk. We can ride a scooter, whatever you want. We were running and we were talking, and he was telling me about his story, his life, his wife and and their daughters had been going to another church for a long time. They had just started visiting Mount Calvary church, and I could tell just in our conversation that this man and his family were hungry, hungry to grow, hungry to get to know god 's word deeper and better, hungry to get connected in in the community of faith and He looked at me and he had fresh eyes on our ministry you know he had just started coming and this is what he said to me he said we love the sunday morning worship service but what's next like how do we get connected pastor matt how do we learn god's word pastor matt where do we go from this service now at that time that we had this conversation we were right in the middle of covid and we weren't doing a lot of the things that we normally did. And so that was part of my answer. But as he asked that question, it gave me pause. Like, what what are we doing? How am how are we helping this family grow in their desire to know God more? And it was about this same time that we had an off-site staff meeting. And I remember writing on the whiteboard in our conference room the question. What do we do next? After someone attends a Sunday morning service, how are we encouraging them to take a step in their faith? What program are we doing to help our people grow? And and as we talked about it as a staff, we kind of realized, and we do lots of programs, groups, and Bible studies, but we kind of came to the conclusion, it's not clear how we're seeking to help you and to help ourselves grow in our walk with Jesus outside of this main service. And also around this same time, I met with a a new believer, a young man, a single dad who had some issues, some struggles. And as we're talking, I could tell he's young in his faith, but we're sitting right down in my office. He looked at me and he said, Pastor Matt, I want to grow. I want to grow and I want to get connected. So what do I do? Where do I go? How, how do I do this? And so these three conversations with the staff and with these two families, um, you know, God started to work in my life with Pastor Jonathan. We, we went to the elders and we said, how, how are we helping our people grow? How are we being intentional and clear with the path by which people can grow in their faith? And so Jonathan and I were we wrestling with this trying to think through how how do we where do we go from here and as we started reading books and we started praying we started reading God's word kind of the the common theme through all that prayer was the great commission this idea of discipleship Matthew 28 19 and 20 go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I mean, Jesus gives a command. And so then we started to realize this isn't programming that's our problem. It's not that we're not doing the right events. Jesus calls us to make disciples. And it's individual, it's individual, and it's for the church. How are we intentionally making disciples Disciples. You read the Great Commission, there's there's only one command in the Great Commission. It's go make disciples. There's participles that kind of tell you how to make disciples, but Jesus says, here's the one thing I want you to do as I leave you make disciples. And so, as we were convicted, I think that's the right word. How are we intentionally shepherding our young believers, our new believers? unbelievers? How are we shepherding those who've been in the church their whole lives? How are we helping them grow and to become disciples? And so for me, I was. I was burdened, and I was convicted, thinking, how are we clearly doing this? And so we started to pray, and we started to think, and we started to read every book we could find on discipleship. And as we continue to work through this, we've kind of come to a conclusion where we said, this is how we want to talk about." what we feel God is leading us to do as a church. That's why it's on the left-hand side of the bulletin. This, is, this isn't just a series. This isn't just kind of what we're focused on right now. I mean, this, this is the heart. This is Jesus tells us to make disciples. And now as a church, everything we do is focused on how can we do that? What, what do we do so that we're listening to Jesus? And so we boiled it down to those three things on your bulletin. The first is to become a disciple. We want every person to come to a saving faith in Christ and to identify with Jesus through baptism. Then you can grow as a disciple. We want to help every person to grow as a disciple through habits. So then you can go and make disciples. We want every person to be a part of sharing the hope of the gospel in our community and around the world. And so this this is our direction. This is our focus. I hope you like it because you're going to hear it a lot. And we want to spend the next several weeks really thinking through, okay, what do these three mean? This morning, we want to think through what does it mean to become a disciple? We'll spend some, a lot of weeks on the habits of a disciple. And then how do we go and make disciples um, of Jesus? And so let's pray as we kind of get started. Father, we're thankful for today. We're thankful that we can worship. We're thankful that we can worship in truth. The words that we sing here this morning are truth. God, that you give us hope and you give us life. We thank you for Pearson and his testimony and his baptism of a man who wants to follow you in his marriage and in with his kids. So, God, we're thankful for that testimony this morning. And God, I pray that this morning as we think about discipleship and we think about what it means to become a disciple, God, I pray that you would teach us. We have lots of concepts of what it means to become a disciple. Lots of nice little ways of saying what it means to become a Christian. But God, I pray that this morning your truth through your word would speak to our lives and to our hearts. Convict us if we need to be convicted encourage us if we need to be encouraged, lead us where we need to be led. God, we want to follow you as your disciple. We want to hear the great commission, not just as some command from the past, but God, we, all of us individually and as a church, we want to be your disciple and we want to make disciples of all people. And so God, help us as we think through how can we be obedient to you. So we lift up our time this morning. We ask for your help. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. We start with become a disciple. this, This is the starting point. Before you can have the habits of a disciple and grow as a disciple, and before you can go and make disciples of other people, we have to start here. And when I say become a disciple, let me just be really clear. When I say become a disciple, I'm saying, How do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? How do you come to know him? And the Bible tells us it's through faith. And so what we're talking about this morning, before we start telling you what to do as a disciple, we would be remiss if we skipped over how you enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, because this must be the starting point. I don't care about your habits, I don't care about your church attendance, I don't care about you, your evangelism or your mission trips if you aren't a disciple. And so until we get this idea of what does it mean to put my faith in Jesus and to be his disciple, then we're missing it. And so when I say become a disciple, I'm saying this is how you become a believer, a follower of Jesus. And I think this is really important. I mean, maybe you're sitting there thinking, okay, this is, this is basic. Okay, here we go. This is a basic starting point, but this is not basic. It's just interesting. I mean, just in general, I'll make a general statement here. Uh, we do a bad job of articulating how we come to faith in Jesus. We do a bad job using our words to describe what biblical faith looks like. And let me just give you an example of that. We to become a member of our church, two things that we ask you to do. We ask for you to be baptized, and we'll talk about that next week. But when you get baptized or you want to become a member, you either have to you write your testimony down for membership, for baptism like Pearson just did. Uh, you, you record your testimony to be shared with the church. And so we work with you on your testimony. But here's what, here's what I often hear, whether it's a membership interview or it's through a baptism. Something like this. Well, so when did you become a Christian? Well, I've, been a, I've kind of been a Christian my whole life. I grew up in a Christian home, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, okay. I'm a pretty good person. And I, as far, as long as I can remember, I mean, I was born into this Christian home, and I've been a Christian my whole life. And we articulate our faith as if it's just something that we were born into, like you're an American citizen. But here's what we see in Scripture. It's, it's a. I'm kind I'm of get passionate about this, not to be harsh, but it's a bad way of articulating your faith in Jesus. Okay, faith in Jesus. When you study the Bible, there's a day one. There's always a day one. You aren't born into Christianity. It's a choice that you make to follow and believe in Jesus. And through scripture, that's what we see. Now you may have grown up in a Christian home. My wife was, grew up in a godly home and she can't remember the day that she placed her faith in Jesus. But it was a day. And I think it's really important to know, again, this is what it means to have faith. This is, it's a moment, it's a time. It's, it was something that happened. Because here's what, what we see. We need to be able to articulate it. So that we can know what we believe and so that we can share with someone else. What does it mean to be a disciple? We have to say, we have to be able to say, this is what it means to come to faith in Jesus. And so this morning we want to think through not just when what, when you become a Christian, but how, how do you put your faith in Christ? What does it mean and how do we become disciples of Jesus? And so, to kind of think through faith, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 7. If you could turn to Luke 7. I mean, this is a phenomenal, a phenomenal chapter. I say this every week about every text, but this one really is phenomenal. Okay? We're not going to look at the whole chapter, but what we see in Luke 7 with Luke, okay? Luke was a doctor, he was detailed. He was very intentional. And what you see at the first, the first story in Luke 7 and what you see with the last story in Luke 7 is this bookend stories on faith. Luke, very intentionally in teaching us about the key to life being faith, he puts these two stories in Luke 7 as if to say, I need you to hear this. And so that this, the first story that we'll read is the faith of a Roman centurion. The second story that we'll read at the end of the story, of the end of Luke 7, is the story of a woman on the streets. And what you see, just kind of as we kind of look above this passage, we see two people on the completely opposite extremes of the spectrum of life. You have a Roman and you have a woman on the street. What is Luke communicating to us? If you have a Roman and you have a woman who is on the streets, what is he saying? He's saying, faith is the key to life. And it is the key to any life, wherever you are, whatever you've done, whatever your background, if it's the key to life for this Roman, and it is the key to the life of this Gentile pagan woman on the street, it is the key to life for all people in between. And so Luke is teaching us through the story of Jesus how, how and what faith is all about. And so we're going to read those first 10 verses for the story about the Roman, and then verses 36 through 50. It's a long passage, so hang with me. Read along, listen for the word faith, um, and we'll, we'll get into it. Verse 1, after he'd finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick, And at the point of death, he was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and to heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. He is the one who built us our synagogue. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And he, turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Verse 36 One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet he would have known what sort of woman this is who's touching him for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and Jesus answered said saying to him, "Simon, I have something to say to you." And he answered, "Say it, teacher." A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, the other 50, and when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more?" And Simon answered, We've got to talk about what does it mean to become a disciple in and through faith? And so just a few thoughts as we kind of think through this passage, what do we learn about what faith is when we look at the Roman and we look at the Roman, at the, at the woman? Just a few things. First, faith is rational, not emotional. Faith is rational. It's not just emotional. Okay, So if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a disciple of Jesus, if you're an, a believer in Jesus, by default, you are also a theologian. Your faith is, is set up and supported by knowledge. Look at verse 3 with the centurion. He heard about Jesus. He knew something about Jesus. He understood who Jesus was Okay, he, he understood something about Jesus's power. He understood something about Jesus's authority. He understood in his mind something about Jesus's value and worth. It started with knowledge. He learned where Jesus was. He sent for Jesus because he knew something specific about this man. It's knowledge. It wasn't just knowledge in general of any of the prophets or any of the disciples. It was specific knowledge about this specific person named Jesus. And the woman was the same way. She was a learner of Jesus. Verse 37, she learned where Jesus was, and she went after him. She had heard Jesus talking. She had learned about who Jesus was, what he did, what he wants to do, and she had learned where he was, and she says, I am going to see him. And so your knowledge, this is just the starting point, but your knowledge, what you know and think about Jesus when it comes to faith is vitally important. Sometimes I'll hear something like it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it with all your heart. Now that's silliness, right? It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you sincerely believe it. it. Doesn't matter what your religion is as long as you believe it with everything that you are. But that doesn't make that doesn't make sense. That's not how life Works. That's not what we see here in Luke 7. It's not just belief in general. They have belief specific, rational belief. And so what you believe is only as good as what you believe, the content of what you believe. Your faith is only as good as what you believe in. Right? The content, it really does matter. It, you, the sincerity doesn't have, doesn't affect whether or not what you believe is true or not true. I was walking with the kids and with our family up, up at Chickies Rock a couple of weekends ago. It's a nice place. It's a little puppy. Wear that dog out. Go for a walk. We're walking. You get to the end and there's these guard, there's, there's the fence post. And it says, don't climb over this fence. Okay, and I'm looking, there's a rock. I mean, it's, it is straight down. But listen, if I believe in my heart that this rock can hold me and my entire family for a selfie, okay? Come on, kids, let's go. Now, one, my son, Truman, would love to just climb that fence. Come on, I believe it. I believe it. This will hold All right, But dad, what about the sign, dad? It just says, don't do that. No, no, it doesn't matter. I believe this will hold us. Okay, that's foolishness. It, my belief has nothing to do with whether or not the rock will actually hold us or not. The content of your faith is really important. And to say it even stronger, what you believe, the content of your faith, is the difference between life and death. And that's what scriptures teach us. That's why we have creeds through the history of the church. Now We don't, we don't talk about creeds very much, but the Apostles' Creed... I believe, what does it say? I'm not going to read the whole thing. It doesn't say just, I believe in God the Father, period, next question. It goes through. Here are really important things for you to believe about who God is and who Jesus is and who created and the Trinity and the cross and what this means. And so before we can be a disciple, we have to understand that what we believe about Jesus is really important the story of the Ethiopian eunuch shows this. In Acts chapter 8, Philip goes up to this, this chariot and he sees this man reading Isaiah 53. And Philip is like, hey, you, you got this? You, does this make sense to you? And the, the eunuch looks at him like, what do you mean? This makes no sense to me. I can't understand. Okay, what, is, what does Philip do? Oh, it doesn't matter. Let's just get you baptized. Come on, come on. I don't, I don't need to explain anything to you. Your knowledge doesn't matter. The content of what you believe doesn't matter. I just need to get my baptism n- numbers up. So come on down, let's get you. No, he doesn't do that. He sits down and he says, let me teach you how to think about Isaiah 53 and what, who Jesus is and how Jesus fulfills Isaiah 53 and how he's our suffering servant. And he explains to him, let me tell you. Okay, knowledge is important just to say, well, okay, okay, that's good, man. I believe in Jesus. Again, my question is, well, what, who's Jesus? Like, who's Jesus? Everyone likes Jesus. I saw a picture of Jesus. He looked like a hippie with balloons the other day. He was on TV. He's hugging everyone. It's like, who is Jesus? You talk to your Mormon friends, who is Jesus? You can't just say, well, I, I believe. I grew up in the church, and I've done those things. I'm pretty good, and I believe in all that stuff, but it's the content of your faith is important. So it's the starting point. Knowing what is necessary for us to believe in so that we would be saved and so that we would be his disciple. But it's not just rational. Okay, Faith is not just rational. It's also repentant. Not just your knowledge. It is also repentant. When you do a study on belief in the New Testament, so like literally, if you would just take the word believe, Google, believe every time in the New Testament, and you start reading these passages. When Jesus invites people to know him, believe, or the, the disciples, or the first church in Acts, so often, it's really interesting, it's not just believe, but it's believe and Repent. I'll show one passage, Mark 1, 14 through 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel. Okay, what's the gospel? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Biblically, if we're going to talk about faith, we're going to talk about faith entering into this relationship with, with Jesus in discipleship, if we're going to talk about these things, we have to talk about this idea of repentance, okay? Because here's the, here's the truth. It, knowledge alone is not enough. Knowledge alone doesn't do it. We know this, right? I mean, you you can have the correct answer. So I've been talking about the wrong answers about who Jesus is. You could even have the correct answers. You could memorize the Apostles' Creed. You could memorize the book of Philippians. You could have every single Awana badge. You could have it all. You could have full, complete knowledge, perfect knowledge about the scriptures, but you are still short of what it means to be a follower of Jesus because it is not knowledge alone. Otherwise, we'd be doing this much differently. It is not knowledge alone. Jesus shows us we must repent. Now, that's a strong word. And so I want to spend just a few minutes thinking about what does it mean to repent? How did the Roman repent? How did the woman repent? And how do we repent? Okay, so here's a quick definition. Repentance is a change of mind that causes sorrow for sin and a turning to Jesus. I kind of like the word realization. It's a realization that causes sorrow for sin and a turning to Jesus. Look at how this happens with the Roman. Okay, back in those first 10 verses, where does he repent? And does it doesn't use the word repentance. He certainly has changed his mind. Remember, he sent the elders, the text says he sent the elders to go find Jesus. My servant is sick. Go find him and send him to me. The servants, the elders, the elders find Jesus. Do you remember their reasoning for why Jesus should come back to meet their Roman centurion? You remember the reasons? It's kind of of interesting. Verse four and five, they're kind of like selling Jesus. Let me sell you on why, like, you should drop what you're doing and come with me. Verse four and five, he loves our nation, he built the synagogue. I mean, they are playing him up. Look at this. This man is good. He worships God. He is a Gentile who helped build the temple. Here is a good man, Jesus. He is worth your healing, he is worth your time because look at how good he is. But here's what's interesting the Roman, the centurion, does not have the same viewpoint of himself. He has changed his mind about his merit and his worth for Jesus to come to him. What does he say to Jesus? Jesus is halfway back and he says, uh-oh, changed my mind, Jesus. I am unworthy. Don't come to my house. Like I am unworthy of you to be here. He talks about authority. He says, I'm a man of authority, but Jesus, you have full authority. And so you see this change of thinking from the people he sent to this Roman centurion. He says, they think you merit God's favor, you merit God's healing, you merit God's time. And what the Roman is saying, um, I've changed my mind about my goodness. I don't deserve you to come, Jesus. I'm not worthy of you to be here. Then look at the the last story there with the woman. I, I mean, this story here, It feels wrong to just rush through this story with the woman of the streets. I mean, this is a beautiful story, a beautiful story. I mean, I I encourage you to spend time thinking through this story. I mean, it's a story of repentance. Here, you have a woman on the streets, and you have Pharisees, and, and. Clearly, the text is saying, let me show you the difference between someone who has repented and changed their mind, and let me show you a person who has lots of knowledge who has not repented. The Pharisees and the woman. She's called the woman of the city. She's a prostitute. Okay, but she has repented. How do we know she's repented? How what has she changed her mind about? She's coming to Jesus saying, I need forgiveness forgive me. That's the parable that Jesus says about forgiveness. She comes to him and says, I need you to forgive me. I once thought that my lifestyle was okay, and I was desperate, and it's what I've done, but, but now I see I'm wrong. Versus the Pharisees, who again have full knowledge, lots of knowledge, complete knowledge, and where is their change of mind? Where is their the same kind of thing that we see with the Roman. Where are they saying, well, I'm unworthy? No, they, they are full of knowledge. They are lacking in repentance. And here's what we see. When you, when you repent, what you're doing is, is you're, you're changing your mind and you're seeing that this story of the gospel, of what Jesus done, it's not just a historical story. It's not history. But when you repent, what happens is you change your mind and you realize that you are a part of that story. Now hear this. This is is what we're missing, I think, as the church at at large. We are missing the brokenness and the repentance in understanding the gospel. It's a story that we read. It's history. But until we change our minds and realize, actually, this this is my story. This is my memoir. This is my biography. It's why I often say in sermons, you are Barabbas, you are Pilate, you are Peter. We are part of the story until we change our minds and we realize that that we are part of this story. Like we are these characters and we fall way short just like they fall short. Then we are missing biblical faith. And here's what we see. When you repent and you change your mind and you put yourself in the story and you realize I'm unworthy, I have no power and I have no authority, just like this man, what happens is, is you're broken. You're broken. That's what repentance is. It's brokenness over the realization that you have gone against God. And it's hard to know how, to, how do you gauge whether or not someone has repented. If you're a parent, you know it's one of the hardest things to do, to discern the difference between a child who is just sorry because they've been caught versus a child who really feels remorse over what they've done. It's hard to know that. I had a situation with an unnamed child of mine who came to me, and I'll tell you, this was, a, this was more unique than usual in that this child, not his name, his, this child had done something really bad. I'm a pretty open book. I'm not gonna be an open book on this. It was really bad. And I mean, I, I was deeply, I was mad. I was mad, I was disappointed, I was crushed. So I'm ready to, to confront this child. And I'm just, I'm just waiting for what happens with, with kids, the, the one that we've been hearing a lot lately. Dad, I just forgot. What do you mean you forgot? You can't punch him in the face. Like, like you forgot? Like, what do you mean you forgot? Oh, Dad, I just I wasn't even thinking about it. Or, you know, excuses, it was their fault. They started it. And so I was I was expecting this as I was going to discipline my child and to talk to my child about this wrong thing they've done. But this time was very different. Their eyes were filled with tears. And they said, Dad, I know I've done wrong. And they wept. They wept. Because they knew. They're not making excuses. They're not pointing fingers. They were repentant. They knew. I have done wrong. What's the problem in the church today? I think we have skipped over this brokenness over our sin. We have taken the Bible as a history book and it really, feelings-wise, it does nothing for us. It's a fact, it's not our personal story. And what we see here, what does the woman do? She weeps, she weeps, she lets down her hair, which you didn't do. She pours this ointment on Jesus' feet and she weeps because she has repented. She has changed her mind about who she is and she is broken because of it. And this is the picture of faith. This is the picture of faith in the whole Bible. David, a great example, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David is broken in his repentance. And this this is part of the formula of faith and I I don't mean to make it complex. It's a simple thing that a child can do. But part of the definition of faith is this belief in who you are and who God is, and it leads to brokenness. And then very and lastly is this. It's not just knowledge. It's not just brokenness. But what you see in this story at the end of Luke chapter 7 is that you see a woman who decides to put her trust in Jesus. She puts her trust in Jesus. She says... I hear the facts, I'm broken over who I am, and now I trust you and nothing else to forgive me. Look at what she does. She takes the alabaster flask, the jar. I was reading about this jar this week. It's pretty interesting to me. What they would do with these jars is when they would make them, they would would take the jar and they'd put the perfume in and that they would make the jar with a, a long skinny neck so that the perfume inside the jar couldn't spill out of the neck but you could still smell it and what people would do women especially would they would take these perfume jars they would tie it around their neck and they would wear it because in this in this day there's no air conditioning there's no deodorant yeah and you'd wear that cuz you'd smell good and not you wouldn't smell bad and so they'd wear these they they'd wear these jars as a way to smell beautiful and so for this woman, this is a prostitute, this, this jar, this flask around her neck, this was her livelihood. This was her life. This is what she trusted in. This was how she did what she did. She smelled good. And what does she do? She comes to Jesus. She falls on her feet and she says, I give you what I've counted on. I give you what I've trusted, and this is my livelihood, this is my way of life, and I pour it at your feet. She's saying, I no longer trust in my job. I no longer trust in what I've been doing, in my sin, but you alone, Jesus, I trust. And really, this is the picture of Romans 10.9. I'll close with this, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, what do you think that is? Confess with your mouth. Jesus is Lord. That's repentance. Saying, I confess, I'm not Lord of my life anymore. And believe in your heart that he rose from the grave. You'll be saved. So here's the question for you this morning. You know, as we think about discipleship and we're gonna jump into the habits and what we do before we get there, I think it is worthwhile for us to pause and to think, have I placed my faith in Jesus? Do I have knowledge about who Jesus is and what he's done for me? Have I repented and have I been broken over my sin and fallen at the throne saying, I need you, Lord? And have we put our trust in him? And I just wanna encourage you, if you've never done that, I'd love to have a conversation with you. You know, it is worthwhile to get uncomfortable to come have a conversation with me. Sometimes people will ask me, well, why don't you have people pray in their seats, or have people do different things. And I say, well, here's here's the truth. If you are unsettled with your faith, with where you are with Jesus, it is worth the courage it's going to take to come and talk to me. It's easy to sit in your seat. Following Jesus, it is worth it to come and talk to me. And so I'd love to do that.